This weekend will mark the 21st anniversary of the terrorist attacks that happened on September 11, 2001. We all remember where we were when we first started to hear what was happening. It was such a big and horrible thing, the memory sticks with us. That might be why it seems like it wasn't really that long ago. But think about it like this. A new baby that was born that year is now a senior in college. There's a whole generation who didn't experience 9-11 in real time. They only know what they see on old news reports or online articles or documentaries. A big way we keep that memory alive is by hearing from people who were there in New York City or at the Pentagon or in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. So for the past few years on this podcast, around September 11, we've set aside a special episode to hear those stories. That's what we're doing today. You're about to hear two ladies talk about what they experienced and how they dealt with it. First is Shaban. She was just 18 years old at the time. She has a YouTube channel, which I'll link to in the show notes, and she told this story 10 years after it happened. The second story is from Jeanette. Her office was on the 16th floor, directly across the street from One World Trade. She told her story just last year, in 2021. At the end, I'll have some important information about the 9-11 Tribute Museum and a few other announcements. Never forget. Real people in unreal situations. There is a man standing in front of me in my bedroom. My friend has been shot. I'm in the literally inside the river and I'm inside my car. He had told me multiple times that he was going to set himself on fire. If you say my name or try to look at me, I'm going to kill you. And he was just sobbing. He said, Mom, Mom, tell me you're going to be okay. And I jumped on the hood of the car and I held on. And I looked into the garage and he was hanging from the rafters. I had somebody standing on my neck. He's better to me dead. I want him dead. I'm Scott Johnson, and this is What Was That Like? Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international bestselling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds. Experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? 
then it's time to become mentally stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, host of The Daily Book Club, a daily podcast where I read wonderful old books one chapter at a time. Simple as that. Whether you want to get engaged and lost in a fascinating story that has stood the test of time, or just relax to a good book, listen to The Daily Book Club to get wrapped up or unwind during your day. We'll read classic stories like Pride and Prejudice, The Enchanted April, The Wind in the Willows, beautiful stories all told from start to finish. And you can even do a real book club. Tune into the Daily Book Club Discord and discuss the readings with other book club listeners. However you want to listen, it's your choice. Subscribe to the Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. New episodes every single day. So sit back, relax, and get lost in the Daily Book Club. So on the morning of September 11th, 2001, I was 18 years old. I'd only just graduated from high school. And um, high school had been really awful for me. I had an exceptionally terrible time. So I was relieved to be <laughs> a graduate, but I was also going to Hunter College, which is on 68th and Lexington, actually not very far from where I live now. And um, I wasn't happy about that because it wasn't the college that I had wanted to go to. My first choice just was too expensive for my parents to handle. I had had a wonderful, amazing childhood. I'm just one of those lucky people who can't say anything bad about my childhood, but my parents had just been divorced. They'd just recently gotten divorced. So my brother and I, along with my mother and father, we were kind of still mourning, reeling. <laughs> we were in shock kind of over the whole entire thing. It was sort of a difficult, strange time, you know, the end of uh, childhood, the beginning of adulthood, learning how to balance a checkbook and work and, you know, school and just trying to be responsible for myself for the first time ever. And I was still living at home with my mom and my younger brother. I grew up in the West Village housing in Greenwich Village on Washington and Bank Street, which was about a block away from the Hudson River. It's an awesome neighborhood. It's home to me. Everywhere I've been in New York, and I have literally lived in all of the boroughs in so many different places. I was a gypsy for a very long time going from one place to another. And I have not been able to find a place that feels like home except when I'm there. Very strange. So anyway, I was also, besides going to college, I was working part-time at the Children's Aid Society. It's a nursery school. It was on Sullivan and Bleecker Street in the village. And um, on that particular day, I didn't have to be at work until one o'clock in the afternoon, and I didn't have any classes, so I was in bed. And both of my parents were at work, and my younger brother, he's five years younger than me, so he was still in grammar school. And uh, school had actually just started that week. My mom called me and I was really sort of annoyed with her because I had had all this time. I had time in the morning to sort of lounge around the apartment and not do anything. I didn't turn on the TV and I was kind of just hanging around my bedroom trying to decide what to do because it was a beautiful day. And I was thinking about calling in sick and playing hooky and just not going to work at all that day. But my mom called me and she basically said, turn on the news. Something's going on with the Twin Towers. You just, you need to check out the news. 
And sure enough, one of the towers was on fire and they were playing these, this clip about um, a plane having hit it. And nobody really knew in the beginning what had happened. I think a lot of people, myself included, just thought it was a terrible accident. No one had ever, at least I hadn't ever contemplated the fact that maybe somebody would have flown the plane into the tower on purpose. And being a curious teenager, I got dressed and I leashed my dog and I walked out of my apartment. I walked up Bank Street and I went to Hudson Street. And I think (laughs) one of the things that's really funny is that I stood in front of Abington Square Playground. And actually, that's the playground that I grew up going to. I have amazing memories there. And it's just kind of strange that I should be standing in front of this place while I'm watching my city kind of turn to shit. As soon as I kind of stopped walking and I was looking up at the the first tower, which was smoking, and the smell was incredible, something I won't forget. another plane came. So I actually saw the second plane hit. And at that point, you know, everyone was craning out of their windows. The traffic stopped. It was really sort of scary to even see your hometown street sort of closed down and just nobody really knew what the heck was going on. But when the second plane hit, I was sure that we were under attack somehow. I didn't really know what was going to happen next, but I knew that something bad was going on, that it was planned. I should probably say, in terms of how close I was to the towers, I could probably walk to the towers from where I was living in, I don't know, 25 minutes, maybe. I don't know, I'm probably maybe a mile or two away. And they were huge. I mean, incredible structures, totally impressive. And one of the things that (laughs) is really strange, it happens to me less and less, but um, whenever I would be lost, like coming out of the subway, I would look around for the towers because I knew when I saw them that that was downtown and the other direction was uptown. And so, yeah, it's happened a few times to me over the years that I've searched for them and they're now gone. (laughs) So... The towers falling was something I will never forget, and I really felt like I was kind of standing in the middle of history as it was happening. Um, Terrible history, but history nonetheless. And the first tower kind of, it was really scary. It fell in pieces. Boom, boom, boom. Sort of just, yeah, I can't even really explain. The sound was, (laughs) it was deafening. It was frightening. It was like, I don't even know how to explain. It was almost like being like you, you watch the news and you see all these terrible things happen in third world countries. And it just kind of felt like I was transported into a place like that. The second tower falling, of course, it was like a really grotesque accordion. It did this boom, 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 boom. And that was more frightening to me. And within minutes of the second tower falling, thousands of people were coming up Hudson, coming up the West Side Highway. Some were covered in blood and grit and dust. There were sirens everywhere, (laughs) obviously. In that moment, people started to scream things like bombs, like there are bombs. 
And because I was outside and I wasn't near a TV or a radio and I was just in the middle of all of this mass chaos and I was 18 and young and impressionable and alone, I couldn't get in touch with my mother or father. I had a cell phone, but couldn't seem to get on the phone with anybody. I panicked and I, I really did panic. Oh, I'm getting chills thinking about it. It was pretty awful. <laughs> Fear is a really intense emotion. And when I, I remember just kind of running uptown with the rest of the crowd and looking at different places and thinking about where I could hide. And, you know, at one point I picked up the dog that I had with me. She's a little beagle, not a very big beagle like my dog now, but I was carrying her and she was heavy and it was hot. So I got as far as 34th Street Penn Station. Penn Station is really crowded anyway, just because this is kind of where the commuters come in from other places. And I mean, you could just feel the fear in the air. Like everything seemed to stop running. Like the trains were at a halt. The taxis were at a halt. And not knowing what to do, I just sort of sat outside of Madison Square Garden and I just couldn't really move. I didn't know what to do. I wasn't sure where to go. And it was actually, there were police everywhere kind of shuffling people around. And a cop saw me sort of hanging around. I was sitting down again with the dog taking a break. And I hadn't brought a, my money or a wallet with me. So I didn't have any money to buy like water, or, you know. And at the time I, <laughs> I was smoking cigarettes like crazy. A cop saw me and was just like, you know what? You should go home. Like <laughs> you should get out of this crowd. And not knowing what else to do, I turned right back around and I went back downtown towards my home. And within five minutes of getting in the door, my mom walked in with my younger brother. And the first thing she said to me was, are you okay? I said, yeah, I'm fine. And she said, we have to go to St. Vincent's, which was the hospital in our neighborhood. It was on 14th Street. And she said, we have to donate blood. So we, she changed out of her work clothes really quickly. And we walked over there very fast. And St. Vincent's was amazing. It was quartered off. There were barricades everywhere. There were ambulances being driven all over the place. I mean, and all of the hospital staff was out on the steps. Some of them were smoking, drinking coffee. You could feel the fear and the anxiety in the air. And there were thousands of people. And because nobody knew what the heck had really happened yet, like, Nobody really understood what had just transpired, except that, you know, people were stuck on these top floors. And can you just ugh, imagine the fear of, you know, many people actually jumped to their own deaths. They decided that it would be better to die quickly than die in a fire. Because nobody knew what was going on, everyone was sort of climbing over each other to get at the news crews that were being set up all over the place. And they were shouting into the cameras things like, you know, so-and-so is my husband, my brother, my sister, my friend. And um, they were in Tower 1, Tower 2 on such-and-such such floor, and I haven't heard from them. I don't know what to do. There was one woman in particular that I remember. She was not much older than I am now. She had blonde hair and a ponytail, and she had a Gap t-shirt on. And she was crying 
into the camera about her fiance. She was a school teacher and her fiance had been at, in tower two, I think on one of the top floors. And she was screaming about how she couldn't get a hold of him. She was not sure where he was. I had never seen such hysterical grief before in my entire life. And I'm ashamed to say that I had to turn away. I couldn't actually look at her. <laughs> like, I'd never seen that. I don't think I've ever seen it since, honestly. And all the while, I was so frustrated that there was nothing that I could do. I mean, we stood in this crowd of thousands of people in front of the hospital, like, you know, and like so many others, we really just wanted to help in some way, but we didn't know how. And my mom, after about an hour of this, my mom decided that we should leave because she was just kind of like, you know, your brother's really little. There's no way we're going to get near the hospital. And 10 minutes before we left, the ambulances just stopped coming. It was amazing. Like they were coming in droves, one after another, after another. And then all of a sudden, nothing. So we walked home and we went into our supermarket. Obviously we bought some supplies because my mom was unsure of what would happen. She was finally able to reach my father and let him know that we were okay. A lot of people actually walked home that day from Midtown and other places too, because, you know, nobody knew if the trains were running, nobody knew about the buses, the taxis. It was just really intense. So a lot of people walked home. The streets were pretty packed that day. We drew up some signs and we went down to the river and we stood along the river and we held up these encouraging posters and signs with hundreds of thousands of other people. You know, we cheered on the firefighters that were coming from all states all around, um, all cities, or all cities, all boroughs. <laughs> and we just stood there cheering them on. I was incredibly frustrated that there was not a whole lot that I could do besides this. And so I went down to Pier 40 where they um, had a makeshift Red Cross camp. And I worked for 48 hours straight, making sandwiches, making care packages, trying to help out with um, the firefighters and cops that needed to be fed. And by the end of 48 hours, I was exhausted. In the days that followed September 11th, the smoke and the smell were intense. I mean, it didn't really dissipate for a few days, like even more than a few days, I'd say a week and a half. So it was pretty commonplace to wear a mask as you were walking around downtown, just because um, the air was so, so horrible to breathe. I mean, I walked around with a sore throat all the time. To get home, I had to show ID. There, the army was there. So it was really surreal seeing the army with a bunch of machine guns standing on corners where you would go grocery shopping or put your kid in a taxi, like, you know, the corner that you take a taxi every morning or the playground or even near the bank. And I had to go through barricade after barricade after barricade showing ID to get home. And that was really pretty scary. Paperwork from the offices, they flew all over the city. So like, I mean, for miles, like you'd find, I don't know, all sorts of office documents that were <laughs> blown everywhere. And you'd see them on the street, things that were just carried along on the wind. 
there were masses being held at St. Patrick's Cathedral, and um, it was really important to both my mother and myself that we went to them. And they were, there were a few, I think for like two days maybe, or a day, there were like, a mass was held every couple of hours, and it really felt like the entire city showed up you know, the politicians and like family members of police and the firefighters, everybody filled the cathedral. So they put speakers all around Fifth Avenue and they blocked off the street and they held mass. And my mother and I, my brother stayed home because he was little. We stood there amongst hundreds of thousands of other New Yorkers listening to the Cardinal over speakers outside of St. Pat's, we cried, like, with all of our other New Yorkers, <laughs> all of our neighbors and our, our friends, and that was one of, uh, one of the most touching moments of my life. <laughs> I don't know how many other people do this, but I like to plan my weekly meals. Maybe I'm just weird, but I like quick and easy that's just one of the benefits you can get with Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. One of the dishes I recently had was the Green Goddess Falafel Bowl. Oh, I loved it. The falafel was seasoned perfectly, and I love how crispy it is on the outside, but really moist on the inside. It's a signature dish of Enat Admoni. She's known around the world as a chef. You've probably seen her on TV and her dishes are made right here in Florida, so I'm supporting local business, and I love that. And the convenience of Cook Unity is crazy. I mean, I've got podcast episodes to produce. I don't have time for cooking. These meals are delivered fully cooked. So when it's time to eat, I pick a meal based on my mood for that day. I heat it for a few minutes and enjoy. The menus are updated every week, so there's always something new to try. You can choose from over 350 meals based on your dietary needs or taste preferences, or go wild and have Cook Unity pick for you because every meal is just amazing. Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef level quality, and endless variety of Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com/what or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code what or going to cookunity.com/what. Something I've been recently making a deliberate effort with is to read more. There are lots of books I want to read, and I try to read every day, even if it's just a few pages. That little bit each day adds up, and it can make a big difference. It's like taking care of your gut. Even though it's not big, it supports the health of your whole body. Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic benefits not just your gut and your heart, which aren't outwardly visible, but your skin too, which you can see. Every morning it's the same thing. Two capsules of Seed DSO-1 and sometimes I wonder, is it normal to feel this great? It helps support digestive health with optimal gut bacteria levels. And thankfully, that's all backed up by science. And all the supporting data is on their website. If you're trying to avoid sugar, soy, peanuts, or gluten, you're good to go. And I was reading the literature and I thought, you had me at vegan, because it's that too. And if you have kids, DSO-1 is the first multi-strain symbiotic shown to be tolerable and health-promoting in a cohort of children aged 3 to 17. And you can use this promo code to give it a try. Trust your gut with Seeds DS01 
Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com slash what and use code 25what to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash what code 25what. The other thing that happened were the missing posters. Missing posters sprang up on every wall of every building of every city block in the millions. I mean, like you couldn't walk anywhere without seeing a missing poster. It was really horrifying. Yeah, it was just <laughs> like, it was horrifying. And in some places, there are still memorials that are have been left up. You cannot, even to this day, walk past a precinct or a firehouse that doesn't have um, a memorial up to somebody who was lost on September 11th, everywhere, all over the city. A couple days after that, a girlfriend of mine came to visit me, and we were curious. We wanted to see what Ground Zero looked like. We walked whatever it was, a mile and a half, two miles down to it. Of course, the army was all around it, but the gates in this one section were open and we literally just walked in. And we walked in and there were other New Yorkers too that would kind of come and look and see because we were all sort of, what happened, you know? It was like a hole in the ground. (laughs) I mean, literally a hole in the ground and there were workers. I mean, we were in a really bad place. We shouldn't have gone down there. We did get in trouble for being down there, but um, this was our city. Our beautiful skyline had just been taken from us. Not to mention all the stories that we were now hearing on the news about the people in the airplane who had tried to uh, fight off the terrorists. We also were hearing reports about the Pentagon and what happened there, but Definitely the towers took the brunt of this attack, for sure. Finally, I had to go back to work. I also had to go back to school. And on that day, we had to walk, I believe, to 23rd Street, or maybe it was, no, it was to Union Square. We had to go to Union Square because most of the trains were not working. There was only like a few lines that were working at all, going. (laughs) So... Of course, everybody needed to get back to work. And one of the more amazing parts of this story was that on the platform, I mean, the platform was so crowded that if you just pushed someone like a little, someone on the other side would literally fall off into the tracks. Nobody complained. I didn't hear anybody cursing, anybody swearing, anybody getting angry or upset about this. It was just silence. I thought it was pretty amazing to see that and to live through that too, to kind of just see New Yorkers banding together and just being respectful of the event and the people that died in this horrible event and just not complaining about having to suffer a little on the morning commute because normally rush hour in New York is pretty intense and, and ugly words are said all the time, but not, not after September 11th. September 11th was kind of a catalyst for a bunch of things that went wrong in my life. (laughs) I was horribly depressed. Horribly depressed. I'm sure that I probably had some sort of post-traumatic stress, but um, definitely not on the same scale as some of my friends who lived closer or who had people that died. But um, 
there's not a single New Yorker my age who doesn't have a story who wasn't affected in some in some way. For 10 years, I have literally sabotaged myself, making the wrong decisions all the time. I dropped out of college and I never went back. I went from one lovely boyfriend to one really destructive boyfriend. I moved around constantly. I had horrible roommates. I lived check to check. I just chose all the wrong things for myself over and over and over again. It just really confused me having experienced this. I don't know. It was something about September 11th. It just, it just really set me back, I guess is the only way I can kind of explain. I have, however, grown up in the last 10 years. I've gotten married. I've had a baby. I haven't forgotten that day or the events that happened in my life afterwards. And I never will never, but I feel happier. I feel more at ease with my life and New York has bounced back. I mean, it goes through its declines, obviously, you know, with the economy, but it goes up and down, up and down. And I've had my moments of walking through Times Square and feeling afraid and thinking to myself, well, is this the day that, you know, Times Square is going to get blown up while I'm here with my family? I've seen some scary things happen. I guess if I wanted to leave you guys with any kind of advice or any sort of final thought, I guess, it would be don't live your life in fear and don't teach your children to hate. Like the, the men that committed that act, they were evil, but they came from communities where there were probably people just like you and me trying to live every day and take care of their children and go to school and have their jobs. And uh, we need to remember that. Don't live your life with a box around your heart, you know, with a fence around your heart. Don't live in ignorance. Open your heart and open your mind. One of my best friends is actually um, Muslim raised. We've had many a conversation about this particular subject and, you know, the action of a few should not define a whole group of people. There's evil in every ethnic group in the world, even here in the States, <laughs> white people here in the States. What about all those? Never mind. <laughs> Never mind. I don't want to go down that road. <laughs> but I'm just, oh, I'm sorry. I'm shaking. I'm just, I don't know. I don't really know why I decided to talk about this today. It really is not easy for me. I just hope that, you know, people, people don't forget that this happened. As an 18 year old watching this and experiencing this, I never once thought about why why this happened to us. But um, maybe that's something that we should have thought about. Maybe that's something we should continue to think about. Like, why would our actions as a country make someone else hate us so much that they would do something like this to us? And I think that if you think about that long enough, you might feel surprised about how you end up feeling about the whole thing. And that's my point is, you know, racism exists. And it's a really sad thing. A lot of people died that day. People of all backgrounds. And we shouldn't... 
we shouldn't soil their memory by filling ourselves with hate. We shouldn't. And I don't. And I wouldn't teach that to my daughter. And I'd feel very sad for someone who felt that way. But now that it's the 10th anniversary of September 11th coming up in the next couple of days, I'm probably going to go down there if I can. And I'm going to pay my respects. And it's the end of a decade, a decade that literally changed my life. I'm happy that it's over. I'm happy that we got through the first 10 years. I wish the families all the best. I hope that they're okay. I hope that they're at peace. I love New York. It's part of my soul. (laughs) I'll never leave. Never, 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 never. No matter how many times they blow us up, no matter how many times they threaten to blow us up, I will never leave New York. Never. It is the greatest city in the world. It is. And I am so lucky and blessed to live here. And it's just, it's home and it's a wonderful place. And no matter what anyone says, (laughs) New Yorkers are super friendly. Bye. Hi, my name is Jeanette and I am a 9-11 survivor. Uh, First of all, I want to thank you for listening. Uh, It's important to to tell my story and it's important that someone listens. So thank you for that. I'm going to try to tell you my 9-11 experience in a very short amount of time. And I'll begin by that morning on 9-11. I was sitting at my desk right across the street from One World Trade. And at 8.46 a.m. when the first plane hit, I heard it and I felt it. But I didn't know it was a plane. I was on the 16th floor of my building and the plane hit way up high on the top of the World Trade Center. So it's far away from me. You hear strange things in New York City all the time, strange noises, and you kind of, as long as it's not gunshots, really, what am I going to do? So I didn't really pay too much attention to it. And then out of the corner of my eye, I saw it out the window. So One World Trade was to my right. I wasn't facing. And I saw something past the window going down. I thought that was kind of weird. Like, nothing should be that big should be going down. You know, a bird, would, if anything, would be going up. So then I became the nosy New Yorker. And I looked out the window. And I looked up. I had to press my face against the window to look up to see the top of the World Trade Center. That's how close the buildings were. And I saw a big hole and lots of black smoke. And it wasn't good. There was something bad happened up there. So I ran back to my desk and I called my older sister, Gail, who uh, also worked downtown, not in the immediate area, but close enough for me to walk to her office. And uh, she works for the government. So I called her being a government worker, you know, some, some things more than others. And I had to let her know, like, you know, something happened across the street in the World Trade Center. It's bad. There's People are dead. I was a little upset because I knew people were hurt and probably dead across the street. It was a big hole, but there was nothing I could do about it. She said she called me back. I went back to work. She called me back quickly after that to tell me it was a small airplane that hit the World Trade Center. And I thought that was kind of weird because the sky was so beautiful that morning. I'll never forget it. How could a plane hit the World Trade Center? It's not like you can't see it. 
on a cloudy day, maybe, but not that day. And I thought, well, maybe the pilot had, you know, some kind of health issue and, you know, crashed into the World Trade Center. I said a quick prayer and I went back to work. 17 minutes later, at 9.03, my phone rang and it was my sister. She said, two World Trade just got hit by a plane. And I argued with her and said, no, Gail, it was one World Trade. And she's like, no, this is a different plane. She did. She wasn't upset. She wasn't loud. She didn't say terrorists. She just said, you need to leave. In my head, I'm thinking another plane, two pilots had strokes or heart attacks. Like, how could that be? Terrorists never went through my brain. And she was insistent. Now, my older sister is not pushy. She's not loud, but she's forceful. <laughs> and she insisted that I leave. I still said no, especially because over the loudspeaker, they had said to stay put, that we were safe where we were, which at the moment we were safer being inside rather than outside. She just insisted. And so I finally agreed only because she said she would come to me and we could leave together. So she's like, why don't you just meet me by McDonald's and, and we'll walk. We'll, we'll walk out of the city together. In my head, I'm like, walk? Who's walking? I don't realize at this point what's going on. But I finally did agree with my sister because we were going to meet. That made sense to me. Whatever was going on, we were going to be together. And that was important. So without any rush, I closed up my desk, went down to the gym, got my sneakers because I had heels on that day and left the building. And while I was exiting the building, that's when I noticed that like, Things that were happening weren't just happening up high in the buildings in the World Trade Center. They were happening on the ground, too. There was debris and people that were hurt. And it was it was scary. It was really scary. And I wanted to go back upstairs. I wanted to stay in the building. But I had already agreed to meet my sister. And our meeting point was closer to my office than her office. So I knew she would be gone already. And... I didn't have a cell phone. My cell phone was in my car under the seat in Staten Island. We didn't have cell phones like that back then. So I made my way up to the meeting point. And when I looked up the block, uh, there I saw my sister with her friend. And the whole time I walked, which had to be maybe 12 minutes, less than 15, I never thought about what was going on around me. I never accepted that we were under attack. None of that went through my head. The only thing that was in my head was that I had to meet my sister, Gail. That was my purpose. I was like a robot. And I know now that it was my, my way of protecting myself from the reality of what was going on. Because that would have probably made me curl up in a ball and, you know, under a car somewhere. I wouldn't have been able to move. So uh, my brain knew enough to shut all that out and just have my purpose. But once I met my sister, then that purpose was served and everything flooded in at once. You're going to die today. People are trying to kill you. Other people are already dead. Like all these different terrible thoughts. And I pretty much was hysterical. My sister's not a crier. She's not a big crier. I am. I cry for everything good and bad. And so I held her tight and sobbed 
and she let me cry for, I don't know, 10 seconds maybe, and pulled me away from her and said, we got to go and we got to go now. And I remember thinking, geez, you're not even going to let me cry? And it's because I just didn't grasp what was happening and what could still happen. Thankfully, she did, because we walked from Lower Manhattan all the way up to 34th Street. And it took us probably an hour and 15 minutes. And how do I know that? Well, the first plane hit at 846. I was at my desk. The second plane hit at 903. I was at my desk. At 937, the Pentagon was hit. We had no idea. We had no radio. We had no TV. We Google wasn't putting news breaks out then. And even if they were, I didn't have a phone. 9.59, the South Tower collapsed. 10.03, the plane went down in Shanksville. Again, no idea. And then at 10.28, one world trade collapsed. And again, no idea. So when you think about uh, my life as a survivor or my day as a survivor, I experienced less than most people on 9-11 because I, even though I was there, I was not aware. So I'm kind of lucky when it comes to that. That whole thing took 102 minutes to happen from the first plane hitting to the North Tower collapsing. And in those 102 minutes, 2,977 people were killed. I didn't know that. What I did know was that we weren't going home. We ended up at a friend's house and we stayed there. And that's where I watched everything play over and over and over and over again. And boy, was that a shock to me. And then interestingly enough, later that day, that night, uh, my sister and I did make it home to Staten Island. We, we caught a bus and we got home. It was dark out, so it was definitely after nine. And um, my sister is married to one of my best friends. She has three kids. And at that time, they were six and maybe nine and 19. They were all seven years apart, these crazy kids. She was very happy to be home with her family. She wanted me to stay. And I was like, yeah, I don't really want to stay here. I want to go home and like be with my space in my space. And so I hugged everybody and I went home and I put the TV on again. And that's when I saw not just the collapse or I shouldn't say just not just the horror. I saw the, the heroes everywhere. I saw the firefighters, the policemen and women, the EMTs and people, regular, normal people like me, like you, helping others and, and reaching out and putting themselves in danger. I thought, I, I can't really imagine how people do that, put themselves in danger to help somebody else. I have no children. So you know how they say mothers will do anything for their children? I have no children. But I did come to the realization that heroes don't always wear uniforms and they don't always wear capes. Sometimes they look just like this. This is a picture of me and my sister. That's me. That's my sister. We look a lot alike. But that's what a hero looks like, just like that. Because that day, 
she came towards what everybody else was running away from. And I still wonder why. She's my big sister. She took care of me. I can wonder for the rest of my life. What I do know is that I'm very grateful she did because I could have easily been a part of that number of people killed if I stayed in my office. My company that I worked for, we never stayed downtown. We left the downtown area after 9-11 and moved midtown. So I didn't have to see ground zero. I didn't have to see the pile. I didn't have to see the pit. I didn't have to face anything that reminded me of 9-11. But I had to live with it, of course. I had to live with the fear. Uh, is something else going to happen? I had to live with being afraid to stay inside, being afraid to go outside, being afraid to get on a plane, being afraid to do everything. And the hardest part for me afterwards, directly after 9-11, I think, was the fact that I could find no, no solace and no hope uh, that things would be okay from anyone because we were all equally afraid. That being said, at the same time, I realized that life is too short and, and we really need to slow down. And when my company asked me, do I want to go back to work that Friday, 9-11 was a Tuesday, I said, absolutely, because I needed to do something. I couldn't just stay in my house watching TV all day and night. So I did go back to work midtown. And that was the day that I shut 9-11 off, just shut it off. Didn't think about it, didn't think about the day, didn't think of what could have happened, didn't even think about what did happen. What I did do was change just a little bit, a little bit for the better, a lot for not so much better. Because, you know, I just wasn't myself. That Jeanette before 9-11, just, she doesn't exist anymore. She didn't then and she doesn't now. But I did slow down a little bit and I was kinder. I was more helpful to people. And I'm, I noticed that I was meeting people's eyes in the street, which I don't usually do as a New Yorker. And those changes were good. And I held on to that. But I never went downtown. I never talked about 9-11. No, I didn't want, I didn't talk to my sister about it at all. And that's how my life went until 2010, when I got a new job right downtown right next door to the building I was in on 9-11. And it all came flooding back. And it like punched me in the stomach. I was just totally taken by surprise with everything flooding back. I heard a tour go through my building, that 9-11 Tribute Center, now the 9-11 Tribute Museum, was giving. And I thought, huh, I don't know why anybody would really give a tour on that. That's kind of weird. Like, ugh. but maybe I should go. Maybe I should check it out. And I did. And that changed my life. Totally. Because after my tour, a nice young lady named Desiree was my tour guide. I spoke to her and told her that I was a survivor. And she said, you should try this. It's very good. It's very good for you. It's very good for your soul. And I'm like, yeah, I don't think I want to do that. And then I thought about it and I prayed about it and talked to my mom about it. And I tried it. 
So though my 9-11 story, the day and the months and even the years, the first 10 years that or nine years that followed after 9-11 were all nice and um, crunched up because I, I don't know if I could explain it properly, but because I didn't think about it, they were they were not 9-11 related. My thoughts, my feelings were not 9-11 related because they were put away. So fast forward to 2011 and to today. So we're going to reflect now from 2011, from when I first moved back downtown to today. These next years were so positively life-changing and so... um, affirming with the hope that mankind, that all of us, we we can do it if we do it together. I did become a tour guide, thanks to the tour guide that took me on a tour, Desiree. Uh, she said, you could do it. And I, and I did. And I learned from the Tribute Museum that you can tell your story in a short amount of time, even though it spans many years. And hours and days and years. In doing that, I had to speak to my sister about 9-11. And I just spoke to her the other day, literally the other day. This is now 2021. And I told her I'm reflecting on the last few years here and I got to condense my story. And when I said, well, I walked down Broadway and there you were, she's like, you didn't walk down Broadway. You walked down Church Street, two different streets, parallel. Like, no, I didn't. I looked left and there I saw you. She's like, no, you looked right. So how much more of this story did I, of my own story, did I not really understand? Or that I tucked away so deeply that I'm recollecting things that are not quite right. I'll tell you what I do remember. I do remember turning around and looking up at that building while it was burning and it was awful. That's one of the things that I wish I couldn't remember, but I do. Now, today, and in the last maybe eight years, doing all the tours, speaking to people from all around the country, reaching out to people of all ages and speaking about 9-11 and my experiences, the day, the months, the years that followed, have helped me heal. And the Tribute Museum, the people there, Help me to know that it's okay not to be okay. I'm not okay with what happened to me. I'm not okay with what happened to New York. I'm not okay with what happened to this country. But I'm okay with not being okay. I've accepted it. And what am I going to do with it? That was the question. What am I going to do with it? I give tours. I share my story. And I learned that one of the things I was dealing with was survivor's guilt. So I can't change what happened. I can't change the fact that I feel guilty about that. So many mothers uh, were killed on 9-11 and I was not. This is the guilt I live with every day. I don't have children. If I could switch places with a mother so they could raise their child and that child could have a mother, I would. I'm not saying nobody would miss me. I'm just saying, and I'm not saying I want to die. I'm just saying that's what I deal with. But to honor all the people that were killed and to show them respect, I tell the story because 
we keep people alive in our hearts when we talk about them. Now, I didn't know anybody that was killed on 9-11, not one person. I'm pretty fortunate. Now, I know so many people that were killed. And that's only because I'm friends with people who lost their mothers or their sisters or their, their children, their husbands, all because of my work with the 9-11 Tribute Museum. Through the museum, I ended up being so confident in expressing my feelings about 9-11 and telling my story that I then became a docent at the National 9-11 Museum, which has a different role, but I still do it. And is it difficult? Absolutely. Do I cry? Absolutely. All the time. But I do it. And it helps me to feel like I am worthy to be a survivor. I hope that makes sense. Through the 9-11 Tribute Museum, I went to Japan in 2012 to reach out to the survivors and first responders and family members of the Great Japan Earthquake, uh, which killed 18,000 people. It was scary. It was exciting. And it was healing for us, even though we were going to help the people there. And then many years later, I ended up going to Gander, Newfoundland to say thank you with a group of docents from the 9-11 National Museum and the 9-11 Tribute Museum to say thank you for them for reaching out to and helping all the people who landed there on 9-11 when the airspace was closed. When I left Newfoundland, Somehow they were thanking me. I'm not sure why, because I'm just a survivor. I'm just a person who happened to be in the wrong place, pardon me, at the wrong time and lucky enough to get out. I'm not a first responder. Those are the people you got to thank. People that helped other people uh, or my sister, right? You could thank them. I ended up being friends with so many people in Gander, so many people in Japan, and I can't even begin to tell you how many people I'm close, close friends with at the Tribute Museum. Friends outside of any 9-11 experience go on vacation. We, we have dinner together. We sleep over each other's houses. We travel. It's, it's a part of my 9-11 story that makes me reflect on, on the power of healing, the power of communication, and the power of, of really love for each other and, and mankind. Doesn't matter where you're from, what religion you practice, you know, what race you are, what your gender identity is. We're just people that need to stick together. And if not for those people that helped me through, including my family and my faith, I wouldn't be able to say that I'm okay with not being okay. I'm actually better than okay. Because when I reflect on the last or all the years between September 11, 2001, and today. I look back at all the things I've done and all the people I've met. Sorry. All the people we lost, because so many people are sick now from 9-11-related diseases. When I think of all of that, the one thought... The loudest, loudest thought in my mind 
is a good one. It's actually a great one. It's a question and a reply to that question. The question is, I'm not really sure how this is my life. How did I get to this place that I can be so happy and so confident and so in, in so many relationships that heal and help my soul and my life be so filled with love and friendship and acceptance? How could this be my life? I'm really not sure, but I'll tell you what, I'm really glad it is. Thank you for listening. You heard Jeanette talk about the 9-11 Tribute Museum and how it's helped her and many others deal with the aftermath of that day and honor those who didn't survive. The museum opened in Lower Manhattan in 2006, but just last month was forced to close its physical location because of fewer visitors due to the pandemic. The 9-11 Tribute Museum in New York City, shutting down for good. Starting today, it's moving fully online. The small, intimate museum opened more than 15 years ago, but workers say they've struggled to attract visitors during the pandemic. It relied heavily on tourists. Unlike the nearby National September 11th Memorial Museum, the Tribute Museum focuses more on the people, the people who were at the towers during the attacks, the victims, the survivors, and the first responders. For years, the museum has been a place to honor them and tell their stories, but that ends today. That announcement was made just last month on August 17, 2022. The museum is now online only, and you can experience it at the website 911tributemuseum.org. Visitors are able to purchase an audio tour for just $10, and you can also sign a petition to save the museum. I signed it, and I hope you do as well. I'll have that link in the show notes. Hey, Scott, it's Krista. I am currently living in uh, Marlboro, Oklahoma, and I had just recently listened to the podcast about Garrett and Duncan, and I was surprised. I had never heard that story before. And I live like eight to ten miles away, and I go to that Duncan or that to Duncan all the time and to Browns all the time. So, thank you so much for your podcast. I enjoy them so much, and I will be listening for more. The new raw audio episode just went live. This is episode twenty-six with three more cases and the actual nine-one-one audio that happened at the time. So signing up to support the show for $5 a month gets you 26 episodes to binge immediately and you get all the new What Was That Like episodes without any ads. You can sign up for this at whatwasthatlike.com support. In this new raw audio episode, a woman is abducted and has to be very quiet as she calls 911. Where's she at now? <laughs> Where is she sleeping at? In the bedroom. A man attacks his family just to get revenge on his wife. Street, St. Charles, unit 406. I'm going to kill myself now, too. My two sir, children sir, are sir, dead, sir, and I'm killing myself. Sir, 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 sir. And a guru sweat lodge ceremony turns deadly. No, it was a sweat lodge. A sweat lodge? Yes. Okay. All right. 
Okay. We're both unconscious, no pulse, and no breathing. All right, you there by yourself? No, there's a lot of people here. Okay. These are exclusive bonus episodes, and you can get all of them by signing up at whatwasthatlike.com slash support. And you'll be supporting the podcast, which I greatly appreciate. And you know what else I like? Listener stories. If you're new here, this is how we end each episode, with a story sent in by a listener. If you have an interesting personal story that you can tell in about five minutes, record it on your phone and send it to me at scott at whatwasthatlike.com. Or you can call it into the podcast voicemail line at 727-386-9468. This week's story is from a man who made a surprising discovery. Stay safe, and I'll see you in two weeks. For my entire childhood, I was the only child of a single mother growing up in Birmingham, Alabama. But at the age of 16, my mother found my father's family in Orlando, Florida, but discovered that he had died of testicular cancer four years earlier. Nonetheless, I got to know cousins and aunts and uncles, and through them, I got to know what my father, Joe, was like, with kind of vague ideas of what life could have been like had he met me and been a part of my life. And so, for the next 30 years, sometimes with large gaps in between, this was my extended family down in Florida. Fast forward to Christmas 2018, which was the first holidays I had with my new husband, and his mother had given us both the gift of an Ancestry DNA kit. This was so we could find out our ethnic national heritages and particularly for my husband to see how Native American fit into his ancestry. Now, after my first test failed, I tried it again and finally got my results back in April of 2019. And one of the features of Ancestry DNA is the ability to see genetic matches and reach out to people who could be family members. Well, I started receiving messages from a particular woman down in South Alabama whose name I didn't recognize at all. I brought this up to my mother, who went silent. She recognized that last name. You see, back in 1972, she had dated two men, one named Joe and the other named Leroy. In her own mind and timeline, Joe seemed like the correct pick when it came to being my father. However, this DNA result indicated it was Leroy instead. Now, come to find out, both men had actually visited me as a baby, but at separate times, but neither wanting to take on the role of father at that time. But one of the most surprising stories my mother told me was that a favorite panda bear doll that I had as a kid actually came from Leroy's toy shop. Oh, and the, the woman who had messaged me on Ancestry DNA, turns out she is one of three half-sisters I now have on my father's side. Now, he is alive and well, and and it's been quite the adjustment to no longer have a dead father or the need to worry about testicular cancer. But as of yet, Leroy has no interest in meeting me. So we'll see where that goes. <laughs>